Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Happy Valentine's Day. <clears throat> Maybe you didn't realize it uh, during the day, but uh, probably by tea time when you saw the strawberries and chocolate uh, reminded you. <clears throat> What a wonderful holiday, huh? <clears throat> you don't get off from work, but it's still a <laughs> a good time to reflect and, and celebrate the uh, amazing capacity of, of the human heart to feel love and extraordinarily opening and connecting feelings and qualities. So I thought tonight that I talk about <coughs> qualities of the heart <coughs> to be in the spirit. <coughs> Actually, I spoke with Jack just a, a little while ago, and he's getting ready for uh, for his talk on Monday night. <coughs> and uh, he said, "Well, what are you talking about?" I said, uh, "Brahma Viharas." I said, "What are you talking about?" He said. Brahma Viharas. <laughs> so the whole land is kind of uh, hopefully shining through with heartful qualities. <clears throat> now watch your mind that says, oh, I wonder what he's saying down there. <laughs> we'll just all get it by osmosis and share. Uh, I wanted to start by... <clears throat> Actually, talking about um, right effort, oddly enough, perhaps, you think effort? We're talking about heart stuff. But particularly, um, one aspect of right effort that directly relates to these qualities. And um, the actual definition of right effort <coughs> in the Buddhist teachings has uh, four components to it. That is, guarding against unwholesome states that haven't yet arisen. <clears throat> Decreasing unwholesome states that have arisen, and we've talked a lot about that. You've probably seen that that's a, a full-time practice. But it's not all of the practice. Those two are just half of right effort. The other two qualities of right effort, or definitions, aspects of right effort, are increasing wholesome states that have arisen and developing wholesome states that have not yet arisen. And I'd like to particularly uh, focus on those two for a moment, those last two, because I think it's an important piece of practice that sometimes we forget or overlook. We can see so much of our minds and our hearts in ways that frustrate us or discourage us, our impatience or our judgment or our anger, and learn to maybe accept and open to them and somehow come to terms with them. But that's just part of the practice. Actually, there are beautiful qualities that are coming through us all the time. And the Buddha said it is, uh, it's not only okay, it's skillful to increase wholesome states when they have arisen. You might think that it's just a fluke when you're feeling love in the midst of anger and frustration and you know your little boy or a little girl mind in there it's not a fluke if you think it's a fluke then you dismiss it oh yeah well i had a thought of of kindness but look at all this other garbage over here and all that does actually is focus on what's wrong Thich Nhat han has this this teaching 
don't just focus on what's wrong. Focus on what's not wrong. Okay, you had a toothache last week. Ah, no toothache today. Isn't that great? And it's a practice that, uh, that we can do as we feel wholesome states arising to... The way to increase them is to be very present for them and let them come up and take delight in them. And there's a beautiful uh, teaching from the Buddha in the Majjhima Nikaya talking about equipment of mind. I, I, did I, I don't, maybe I read it last time. Anyway, it's, it's a, um, he's talking about different wholesome qualities. And one is, um, he's talking about generosity. And he says, uh, here's the, the line, thinking, <clears throat> a practitioner thinking, I'm practicing generosity. One takes delight is gladdened in the heart and has a deeper inspiration for the Dhamma. He's saying this is a very skillful thing to do as you're in the middle of a generous act. Oh, gee, it feels so good to be generous. Now, that might be going against your, your training or thinking, oh, well, you know, I, I don't want to get... I don't want to get uh, identified with that. But actually, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, boy, aren't I generous? I hope people see how cool I am. He's saying, in a way that's not identifying with it at all, as you feel the generosity or the kindness or the goodness coming through, you can take the light in it and feel how wonderful it feels. Oh, how wonderful as this quality moves through me. Not taking ownership at all. As soon as you take ownership, there's that grasping and, and conceit and uh, identification. But just to feel that goodness is very, very healthy. When you do that, you're planting wholesome seeds. As, uh, as Mary you know, so, uh, so clearly and beautifully was saying in the, in the uh, metta practice, the Tanglin practice that was just done, you know, it doesn't matter even if you feel it or don't feel it. Just planting the intention, it will arise. And the way it works on a karmic level, as you're feeling something that's wholesome, there are three different ways that I see the karma, uh, the result of that wholesomeness. While you're in the middle of that feeling, if you're attending to it, or in the middle of an action, say an act of generosity, and you're present for it, it feels good. Like the Buddha says, ah, gee, this feels so good. As you plant that seed, in the future you strengthen the possibility of it arising again because you're practicing that. We can practice anger. We can practice confusion, which we do a lot of. We can also practice moments of kindness or generosity. And the more we practice it, the likelihood that they arise in the future is greater. And the third benefit, the wholesomeness of that that karmic seed is that when you reflect back it feels good think of a kind act that you've done in the last few days or in the last few weeks think of anything can be holding a door open for somebody you got something in there (laughs) sometimes it's hard have I done anything kind in the last ten years (laughs) nah you know well, maybe you can think of something. And when you, when you think of it and you reflect back on it, it feels good too. So every time, every seed is, is ripening and bears real fruit, just like the converse when you're, when you're planting a seed of, of anger or um, something unskillful, it feels not so good in the moment, the likelihood 
that you will respond in that way is greater in the future. And when you reflect back on what you've done, it also doesn't feel good. So we've got a choice in every moment what seeds we want to plant. Thich Nhat Hanh calls this nourishing healthy seeds. So these different qualities of heart, they arise spontaneously and they also can be cultivated. Very direct practice. Just like mindfulness can be cultivated, uh, that's also how karma works. You practice trying to be mindful and lo and behold, moments of mindfulness start happening. So since we've been doing a period of, of metta each day, I thought it would be good to um, uh, share a bit of my understanding of, of the practice and also include the other three Brahma-viharas. If you're not familiar with the term Brahma-vihara, Brahma is heavenly or divine and vihara is a, a dwelling abode. So these are called the divine abodes. The, the four are loving kindness, or metta, compassion, karuna, joy or sympathetic joy, mudita, and uh, upeka, equanimity. And you're dwelling in one of those <laughs> right here, aren't you? <laughs> Did you notice when you got your building? You know. Oh, joy. Oh, that's good. Just kind of gives you a little theme or, or flavor. Uh, and every one of them is divine, so it's not like you're going to be a loser. <laughs> and as you, you do this, it's a, it's a happiness practice. <clears throat> Although it's important to keep in mind that even though it's a happiness practice, everything else comes up sometimes that gets in the way of the quality that you're developing. And that's it, a, a useful thing to know. You know, there you are, as somebody is saying, ah, bring kindness to yourself, you know. And you just feel like taking the stick and really whacking yourself, you know. Feel the love for all beings, you know. Yeah, right, you know. Well, it's not that you're doing it wrong. It's that as you have the intention to open up the heart, sometimes you get in touch with everything that's in the way. And that is a healthy experience. It's a purification, if you can hold it in terms of a purification experience. It's very important rather than beating yourself up and thinking, oh, no, not me. Uh, the first time I did a, an intensive period of, of metta practice, by the fourth day, I kept on thinking of all the awful things that I'd done in my life, you know, just one after another after another. It was, it was really discouraging. Can't believe because as you're feeling all this this love, oh God, I can't believe I did that. You know, it's a purification, and I went through pretty heavy purification as as I've shared. I just shared it recently in my Thursday group. After a while, I decided to name the the top twenty worst things I did in my life, you know? <laughs> and I was so happy. I just got up to seventeen, and I couldn't think of any any on that level of real awfulness, you know. It was humbling. It was very humbling. So, um, as you do the, the formal practice, you go through various categories. Probably a number of you have, have done this. You know, we've done here uh, metta, loving kindness for ourself. And then in the formal practice, there's uh, loving kindness for a benefactor did that the other day together and for friends and for neutral people 
and for a difficult person, and then for all beings. And you might think, oh, this is, it seems very dualistic. You know, here we're trying to, to see through the separation we have imagined between us, and here I am wishing loving-kindness for this person. But actually, it's, it's a doorway to that non-duality, because what you see is that this quality, as it comes through, can be placed on any, any focus, any subject, and you see they're all deserving of that same loving-kindness, and then you see the very feeling that's coming through is not yours, not theirs, it is just moving through all of us, and the separation can dissolve. There are benefits to doing loving-kindness practice if you need more incentive besides just feeling that quality in your heart. These are the 11 classical benefits. You will sleep easily. It's true, when your heart is at peace and filled with love. You will wake easily. You will have pleasant dreams. People will love you. Devas, celestial beings, and animals will love you. You can tell about the animals. That's an easy one. Just to the devas also. Devas will protect you. External de- dangers will not harm you. Your face will be radiant. Your mind will be serene. You will die unconfused. You will be reborn in a happy realm. So, it's worth the effort, isn't it? (laughs) When you do the loving-kindness, as I mentioned um, earlier in the retreat, there are phrases that can be said, and there's an image that you can um, evoke, and then there's the feeling. And if any one of the three are happening, you are um, you're doing the practice. So if you're not feeling the feeling or the or having the image, just saying the phrases, you're doing it. <clears throat> the near enemy. There's a near enemy for all of these. The near enemy of loving kindness what looks like loving-kindness but is quite different, is attachment. All the love songs and movies and country and western music and novels throughout history, so many of them deal with the pain of love. And what they're talking about is the pain of attachment that gets confused with true love. Because the quality of loving-kindness is expansive. It's not trying to grasp and possess anything. And sometimes they get enmeshed or intertwined and it's hard to separate out. But if you keep on focusing on that quality, it gets evoked. We, we can feel love in, in many different ways. We can feel it, today is Valentine's Day, for somebody special. Isn't that an extraordinary part of this mystery that there are people who just touch our hearts? You know? People in your life who you've known. You know? Just thinking about them and you start to open. Or people who somehow have a, a key that can unlock the love that you didn't even know was there. It's, it's quite magical, isn't it? And it's quite intense at times. But when we think that the love is out there, that they possess the key to my heart, and without them, I can't access it, that's when it gets scary. That's when we start getting frightened and afraid of losing it, and where there can be resentment for somebody having so much power over us. But what they're doing is just 
awakening or helping to awaken the love that's been in there all along because that's where it is. It's not out there. We get confused in thinking it is. So there's the interpersonal love. There's a love that, that we can have for the Dharma. Many people have heard me tell the story. Actually, now it's, it's in the Spirit Rock newsletter. I can hardly, can't use it on, on retreats anymore. Uh, about realizing how much at the heart of, of practice for me is the fact that I love the Dharma. Ramdas saying, well, what do you think of God? And I say, well, I can't relate to God so much. When I think of God, I, th- I, I, re- I translate it as Dharma. And he said, well, do you love the Dharma? I said, yeah, I really do. And I'm saying, well, go ahead. Say, say I love you, Dharma. <laughs> and I felt really stupid. And he said, go ahead, I'll say it with you. And he said, I said, okay, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And we said that back and forth a few times until I just got it once. And tears streamed down my eyes and he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. (laughs) And it's something that we all feel that maybe we're not as much in contact with, but it's there. You love this stuff. Why else would you put yourself through this? I mean, this is not a whole lot of fun sometimes. But there's something in you that so deeply either loves the truth or loves, loves the purity that you touch that is so compelling that everything else is, uh, is less compelling, is less, is less of an interest to you. So there's loving the Dharma. And then on the deepest level, the experience of love that the practice points to is... When there's no you loving the Dharma, when there's just love expressing itself through us, when there's true uh, understanding of the non-separation, that is the most profound love. Because it's not dependent on any external, it is just feeling that wholesomeness as it arises through with that understanding that we're all connected. That's the glue that holds us together. In uh, The Universe is a Green Dragon, this book by Brian Swim. It's a great book. He talks about the different laws of the universe. And one universal law is um, what he calls allurement, the glue in the universe. And it's in the molecules and atoms that are keeping everything together and in gravity that holds the planets together and solar systems and galaxies. And in the human form, it manifests as this connection, this movement towards merging that we call love. I just want to spend a a little time particularly on... Um, love metta as it applies to ourselves. Sometimes it's really hard to feel that towards ourselves. It's the hardest place. Maybe we can feel it towards others or think everybody else is worthy of our love sometimes, but we're a different story and we have to remember our our beauty. This is a, a poem, a beautiful poem by Galway Cannell. He says, uh, the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. We can be so hard on ourselves, can't we? It's a strange 
misperception, what uh, Einstein calls an optical delusion of consciousness, that somehow when we're in our own bodies, we don't give ourselves the same benefit of the doubt and the same appreciation and kindness that we would give more easily to everyone around us. Loving ourself is not easy at times, but it is a great, important thing to practice. It's not selfish. Actually, it's a gift that we give to everybody else. Because when you're around somebody who truly feels okay about themselves, it allows you to be okay. Because they can, when they can feel okay about themselves, they're not busy trying to put you down in response. Then they can see your beauty all the more. One um, method that I came across in doing a period of intensive practice of getting in touch with that metta for oneself is uh, is a play of consciousness that I'd like to share. I'll do a few experiential things, I think, uh, in this talk. So just imagine this. Uh, bring someone to mind who you know really cares about you, who you have respect for. Just somebody who, who loves you and who you appreciate and love or respect. Just bring them right now into your mind's eye You might close your eyes as you do this and imagine them right in front of you. And just imagine that your consciousness can move from your body, from your being through space and enter their body. And then imagine looking out through their eyes and see what they see. Why it is that they think this person in front of them is such a neat person. Can you see what they see? Even when you don't think it's coming through, it shines through. They can see it. And with that, sending yourself some loving thoughts. Ah, May, may this being be really happy. Mm. May they be filled with peace. May they see their own beauty. Okay, and then when you like, you can open your eyes. Could you get it a moment? It's fascinating to me, you know, when we have a hard time relating to ourselves or being kind to ourselves. If you met somebody who got your jokes, really got your jokes, you know, who had your taste, who uh, had the same take on on life, wouldn't you be happy? You, know? <laughs> you finally found somebody who got it, you know. You'd be delighted, you know. Wow, this is a neat person, you know. Well, there they are. <laughs> you don't have to go far. You know, like the Buddha says, you know, we can be our own worst enemy, enemy, but once we master our thoughts so we're not confused by them, no one can help us as much, not even our fathers or our mothers. Nobody can be as good a friend. You can be your best friend, just seeing that, that goodness in you. And then as you develop it in you, and then you start to develop it in the benefactor or... Uh, see it in the other friends and you can see, oh, I can practice this too. And even to neutral people, of which there's about six billion in the world, you, know, you take a neutral person as a kind of symbol for all the people that you don't have feelings one way or another. 
And as you practice it and see, oh, this person also wants to be happy, just like me. And see that commonality that you share. When you do that, you can start to see all the other neutral people in that same way. Not so different from you. As the Dalai Lama says, as you are able to practice that, that love for all of those other people, you in- increase your chances of, of love by six billion. You know? So, a neutral person, then a difficult person. And the way that you practice all of these is you think of some good quality, some wholesome quality that moves you about that person. Maybe they're kind to their dog or maybe they were... were uh, innocent as a child, or maybe they're good to people that they're close with. And focusing on that, whatever you focus on, it allows you to um, to become stronger in that feeling. And if you focus on somebody's good qualities, then that's what you can feel as you send them kindness to. This uh, reminds me of one of my my main practices that uh, Maharaji, Neem Karoli Baba, uh, would say, he said, keep on looking for the good in people. Even when you see all the garbage, you know, if you focus on what's wrong, that's what you'll see. But if you keep on tuning into what's good in them, that's what not only you'll see, but that's what you'll bring out. Think of how you are around somebody who sees all your flaws, all the things wrong with you. You feel flawed, don't you? Exposed. Think of how you are around somebody who might know all your flaws but sees your beauty. You feel beautiful. So you have a very powerful effect in what you bring out in others. That's the first metta. After you do the difficult person, then you do all beings in, in all directions. and uh, There's no barrier. This is called the, um, uh, the boundless state. No separation. Then the uh, next Brahma Vihara is compassion, karuna. And this is uh, sometimes defined as the quivering of the heart in, the, in resonance to suffering around us. It is loving kindness, an open heart that is meeting suffering. And it takes some courage to keep your heart open in the face of suffering. The near enemy of compassion is pity. That looks like it, but there's a kind of fear, a closeness, a contraction that is not wanting to touch that. Oh, that's too bad about them, but you know, we keep our distance. We have this capacity to feel caring for others to the point of even risking our life for others. It was either, I think, Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer or Kierkegaard, one of those who talked about how amazing it is that that human beings will sacrifice their life in a disaster, an emergency, you know, to save somebody else. We don't even think. It's so much there in us. We respond naturally. Just like probably you'd respond if you saw a little child fall down. You'd want to be there and help them. It's there naturally and we can cultivate it with meeting the suffering around us too if we're not afraid of suffering. And that's one very potent aspect of our practice that we we come to terms and we don't shrink from suffering, that we find the faith or the confidence or the courage to meet suffering so that when we meet it outside in others or in ourselves, we can keep our hearts open. Sometimes when we see suffering in others, we want to fix it both out of caring, but also out of um, uh, having some aversion to it. And we, we want to go in and save. 
But a, a lot of times, the most compassionate thing we can do is um, just be there, be a presence as people go through their own lessons and go through their own um, pains and sufferings. And if you take that away from them too soon and don't allow them to go through what they they need, uh, it's it's not it's not so helpful because that just conditions them to rely on you or on somebody outside to fix them. You know, a lot of times in interviews, that's what we do. Somebody's coming in with a going through a hard time and and. The way I see it is just providing a, a space that, that says, oh yeah, it's okay. Um, it's hard. Wow, it must be really tough. And I'm here for you. And then that empowers them to not feel so alone and face their own suffering with wisdom. This is uh, from Chicken Soup for, for the Soul. There was a a contest, the most caring contest, and uh, the four a four year old won the contest. Um, out of all these people, it was I think Leo Biscaglia was was writing about this. And he was the judge in this contest, and what this uh, four year old did was uh, a neighbor who uh, just lost his wife uh, was feeling quite in grief and and, and bereft and was um, uh, on his porch uh, sobbing. And the boy just, he was with his mom, and he just went across uh, to, uh, to the neighbor's house and, um, and went up to the neighbor and sat in his lap. And, um, and the mother couldn't, see, couldn't hear what was going on, but she noticed after a while, the man was crying there for a while, and then he just calmed down and got very peaceful. And the boy came back after a while and the mother said, what did you, what did you say to him? What did you do that, that made him come to that place of, of peace? And he said, uh, I didn't say anything. Uh, I just helped him cry. Just by being present, we can express our compassion and our caring, and we can develop it. This is uh, from the Dalai Lama, His Holiness. He says, Whenever I speak about the importance of compassion and love, people ask me, what is the method for developing them? This is not easy. I don't think there's any particular package or method that enables you to develop these qualities instantaneously. You cannot just press a button and wait for them to appear. I know that many people expect things like this from a Dalai Lama, but really, all I have to offer is my own experience. And he says, I come from the northeastern part of Tibet. Usually, people from that area are quite short-tempered. So if I get angry, I can use this as an excuse. When I was 15 or 20, I was quite short tempered. But through Buddhist training and through difficult experiences, I've been able to improve my mental stability. Difficult experiences are very good training for the mind and heart. They help us develop a kind of inner determination. Today, compared with 20 or 30 years ago, my mental stability is much better, I'll say. Of course, irritation still arises sometimes, but it disappears quickly and heated agitation is almost never there. As a result, I experience more happiness and joy. When the worst news comes, I feel uncomfortable for a few minutes, but afterward, I don't feel much disturbance. Through training, we can change. It's nice to know that the Dalai Lama was short-tempered, huh? Gives us hope. We can change. If we have the intention to change, if that's greater than our intention to stay the same, we'll change. As long as we don't get impatient with the process. And in a moment, we can change. The words for um, 
the compassion practice are traditionally uh, may you be free of suffering. And you bring to mind somebody who's feeling a lot of um, going through a hard time and imagine them and wish them to be free of suffering. I must say, when I first uh, did all the four Brahma Viharas, moving from metta, and I was by that time pretty stoned after about two or three weeks of metta, just feeling quite open, moving to compassion, and when I was saying, may you be free of suffering, actually is quite jarring because I was all of a sudden focusing on suffering. And for me, those words, I had a sense of wanting to get rid of the suffering, wishing that they wouldn't have any more suffering. And uh, it was hard until I used an alternative phrase, which for me resonates uh, much more helpfully. And that is, I care about your suffering. Because that's really what compassion is. You know, it's called a Brahma Vihara, a divine abode. Sometimes when we think of compassion and dealing with suffering, we don't think of it as divine. Oh, what a wonderful thing. I can, I can, I can hang out with suffering and just feel, you know, open-hearted about it. But, oh God, let me go for the joy. You know. But really, the divine, the heavenly part of that quality is the, the capacity of the heart to care. And it's beautiful to feel that caring come through. That's quite inspiring and uplifting. So that's what I, I offer to you as, you, um, as we do this for a moment. Okay. So bring to mind somebody, maybe somebody who's going through a hard time. And, and uh, you don't have to go for a final exam and go through, you know, for the, for the most intense, uh, painful image in your, in your life. There's somebody who's having a hard time and have a, an image of them and just express your caring. And as you say the words, like I said before, kind of splash them with, with the energy. I care. I care about your suffering. I care. You might even visualize them really getting your caring. And feeling that quality, taking delight in that capacity to care. Just feel the wholesomeness of it. Notice when it's here. I care. you can open your eyes. And as you would do the formal Brahma Vihara of compassion, you would do it just like with the, with the metta, go through the various categories after a person who has some suffering or pain, then going through, um, I'd go through self and then benefactor and, you know, we all have suffering in our lives and friend and neutral, difficult, etc. It's not so different. You're suffering from someone else's. And since it's the first noble truth, we all experience it. The third of the divine abodes is that of joy. And Traditionally, it's called sympathetic joy or joy in the joy of others. But you can include yourself in there too. Joy in your own happiness as well. 
And this is really the open-heartedness of metta in the response to happiness around you, to goodness, to beauty. Sometimes it's a hard one for, for people to connect with. In some ways, it can be easier to connect with compassion because there's a kind of misperception about other people's joy and what that means in relationship to us. We might see how we're not feeling what they are, what they're feeling. And then when they're feeling lousy, well, well, I'm feeling a little bit happier than, than them. You know. there's a, I came across this quote from Montaigne, the French philosopher, he says, there's something altogether not too displeasing in the misfortune of our friends. <laughs> it's humbling to admit that. You know what he means? It probably doesn't last for too long, but still, it's based on this misperception of a quota of happiness, that there's a limited amount of happiness, and if if they're happy, then maybe it's less for me. Or if I'm happy, sometimes people feel guilty about feeling happy. If I'm happy, oh, they'll feel bad in comparison. You know, that That's a... That's a big price to pay to take care of others, you know, because you might be afraid that they'll feel badly and so you don't let yourself feel the joy. And it's it's quite interesting how sometimes people are more familiar and at home with suffering. They come on retreat, you know, oh yeah, suffering, I know that one really well. Okay. That's home, you know. But all of a sudden they start feeling joy or bliss, you know, and they say Oh my goodness, you know, this is weird, you know. What am I feeling? Somebody wrote a note to me today. Is it is it uh, should I feel guilty if I'm if I'm experiencing bliss? <laughs> and you know, it, it's I, I think it was uh it was really uh, a, a sweet, you know, kind of honest expression that we sometimes that that many of us feel, you know whether it's subconscious or conscious. But this is a misperception because the way you you can think of it is as you experience happiness, it's like there's more happiness in the general pool of humanity. It doesn't work, that quota doesn't work with, with anger, right? If somebody comes into into a room and they're really in a nasty mood, you don't say, oh, good, they've got the nastiness, now I'm happy, right? <laughs> it's, you know, you pick up the vibes, it's, it's catchy. In the same way, you can pick up the vibes. You can feel joy in somebody else's happiness because there's that much more happiness. And that's the Dalai Lama saying, ah, if you can take that, that happiness of others, then you increases your chances of happiness six billion fold. This is uh, from Ajahn Sumedho. A a wonderful uh, Theravadan monk. Sometimes in Theravadan Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy and enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. <laughs> this has a certain value on one level, <laughs> but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true 
are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us, and in them we can find joy. This is mudita. So it's okay to feel that wholesomeness and to appreciate the beauty in life. The near enemy of mudita is exhilaration, where you get so swept up by how wonderful things are that you lose your center and there can, there can be confusion. And the, the prime example of this is what sometimes happens in, uh, in sports and being a, a sports fan or not. I, you know, I've seen this you know, lots of times. It's so, it's so sad after a championship is won by a city and there's riots in the street. People get so swept up and they get intoxicated and then there's looting and there's you know, all sorts of ugly things that happen. But to really let it sink in and feel that goodness without it getting spun out into, um, into craziness, uh, this is really wise and wholesome. The benefits of mudita, friendliness, compassion, generosity, tolerance, and it is a focus for concentration. It's also an antidote to jealousy, greed, boredom, and apathy. The, um, the phrase for sympathetic joy is, may your happiness continue and may your happiness grow. And the way that you do it, if you're doing formal practice, is you think of somebody who is quite um, uh, in a good space and quite doing quite well. And then you send that to them and you practice with them and then you can direct it towards, towards all the various categories. So let's just try it for a moment. Okay. So close your eyes and think of somebody who's having a good period, a good phase in their life. Somebody who you like. Uh, that's helpful. <laughs> it's easy with, easier with children, um, but if you think of an adult, yeah, fine. And have an, have an image of them right at the height of their either success or happiness and see them just in that moment. Just take a picture of them. And then wish for them these thoughts. May your happiness continue. May your happiness grow. Just imagine splashing them with that blessing. May your happiness continue and may it grow. May your happiness continue. May your happiness grow. And notice right now if you've been able to access that space, how it feels to wish happiness for another. It's a divine abode. It's a heavenly realm. Okay. So, on to the last of these. Metta, compassion, joy. And then the fourth abode is equanimity, upekka. 
And this also has a quality of opening the heart. But it is an open heart that's so spacious that it's balanced and not reaching out for anything. There's a, there's a deep peace and um, openness to all things. There's not an agenda. There's not a hope. But there is a caring. The near enemy of equanimity is apathy or indifference. It looks like balance, but it is divorced from that connection, that caring. So notice when you're you know, taking your spiritual stance of being a Buddhist, you know, unruffled by things. And make sure it's equanimity and not cutting yourself off from, from the feelings. And equanimity is rooted in the understanding of impermanence, the suffering that comes from grasping onto changing experience, and the selfless nature of the process. It's rooted in the understanding of karma, that the process of life is just unfolding as it does, and that there are not accidents in this unfolding, and that we can't control this unfolding for others, and we can do what we can to plant wholesome seeds, but we also can't control what's happening to us in any particular moment, because karma is unfolding from the past. What we can do is meet this moment with wisdom and kindness and plant wholesome seeds for the future. But what happens in any particular moment is out of our control, isn't it? Well, equanimity is really acknowledging this in relationship to others. The phrase, the phrases for the equanimity practice are you are heir to your karma. Your happiness and unhappiness depends upon your actions, not upon my wishes for you. Now you might think, well, that sounds a little cold. But it's not, actually particularly if there's that caring, but it's just seeing all you can do is wish well for them and let go of fixing or saving or changing their karma. And that equanimity is essential to develop so that it can hold the caring of compassion and the, the, the delight of joy and the the, the juiciness of loving-kindness, there is a spaciousness that doesn't get swept away by those feelings. So it's a very important piece in there. As you're feeling the loving-kindness, to have that balance of mind or the compassion or the joy. As you are more in touch with this understanding of karma it really motivates you to be careful in the seeds that you plant. Again, the Dalai Lama said, if you have to choose between a deep understanding of karma or a deep understanding of emptiness, go for the karma. Because you can have an understanding of emptiness and if it's not complete, you can do some stupid things that affect your unfolding. But if you are facing in the right direction and see how karma works and keep on um, planting those wholesome seeds, 
that leads to a purification and a purity of wisdom as well as um, of conduct. When I did the uh, equanimity practice, uh, I uh, you go through. Uh, you first you pick a neutral person, and then you go through all these various categories. And it was it was going it was going pretty well. I was thinking, okay, you are heir to your karma, you know, your happiness, unhappiness. And I got really excited when I when I got it, and I put a whole lot of people in uh, in the seat in front of me, just telling them the good news. I remember, you know, putting Jack there and said, "You're heir to your karma, Jack. You know, your happiness." And it wasn't like a, a lecture. It was just like, "Oh yeah, you would get this." And I remember Sylvia and my wife and my, you know all my friends and it was and I put myself in there oh yeah that's really how it works and then I put my son in there who was uh, he was probably about 10 at the time and uh, a very amazing thing happened as I said those words my beautiful son the apple of my eye as I said, you are heir to your karma. Your happiness or unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. Um, I had these images of all the awful things that could happen to a child, to your child. And uh, there was drugs, uh, accidents, diseases, uh, awful things, one after another. And at first it was like, um, uh, I don't know if, you, if you've ever seen the movie Clockwork Orange. You know, it was like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I could handle this. And it was one after another. And, um, but I, I just, there was no place else to go and that was the practice. And I thought, wow, there's something here. And when I got over what happens, it was very freeing. And actually, that has been my um, my main understanding. That was my main lesson in equanimity. And even that, we don't have control over as much as we'd like to, as much as we would hope to. We can just do our part and wish for the best and see everybody in their own journey. So, just offer this with you. Let's, let's do it right here. Think of somebody. Somebody that you care for. And just send them these thoughts. Have them in front of you. You are heir to your karma. Your happiness or unhappiness depends on your actions, not on my wishes for you. And if you can, say it with a lot of caring. It doesn't mean that you are detached from them. Caring, but letting go of the control. You can just, if you get the the sense of it, just abbreviate it to, you are heir to your karma. The mystery of karma, which we can't understand, that the Buddha said, you would go crazy if you tried to figure out. But there is this lawful unfolding. You are heir to your karma. And see what it's like to care and let go of control and have a space of balance and equanimity. And feel the power of that equanimity. and the freedom that comes with it.
open your eyes if you like. So these are the, the four heavenly states, sublime states. And there are many others. So again, I uh, encourage you when any kind of wholesome state comes, really be with it. Really let yourself experience it because the, the seeds that you plant will, will bear fruit. <coughs> I'll just end with this passage from the Dhammapada. The perfume of sandalwood, rose bay, or jasmine cannot travel against the wind, but the fragrance of virtue travels even against the wind as far as the ends of the world, like garlands woven from a heap of flowers, fashioned from your life as many good deeds. And the deeds of feeling the wholesomeness are the start to the deeds that manifest in your life. So we'll just take a final moment to sit. Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. So there's about uh, 30, 35 minutes for a sitting, for a walking than the last sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.